first of all, by turning my microphone on <laughs> and thanking you for all the generous, the notes and the gifts. This past month was Pastor Appreciation Month, and I, I feel very appreciated. I know my family does as well. Thank you all for taking the time to, to fill out those cards, to, to uh, say something meaningful, and, and so many generous gifts. Thank you all so much for that. I deeply appreciate that. So why would someone betray the United States to become a spy for the Russians? There was one psychiatrist that was trying to dig down into that question, uh, questioning a former FBI agent by the name of Robert Hansen. And you may remember that name, I think about 15 years or so ago, he decided that he was going to take a big bribe. And he was going to become a spy for the Russians, and he did so for a long period of time. So a book was written about this. A book was written about the interviews that the psychiatrist had with him, trying to figure out why would someone who had taken vows to serve and protect the United States of America and her interests and her secrets, why would they violate that? Well, the answer wasn't surprising, given the outcome. He received about $1.4 million. And when they asked him why he did it, he said it was because of financial pressures. But the psychiatrist interviewing him wasn't really satisfied with that answer. So he kept drilling down, well, what kind of financial pressures? And when he looked at his life, he found out that he had been living beyond his means. Well, the question came, well, why were you living beyond your means? And he said, well, it was because I wanted to be able to give my wife everything that she wanted. And I remember reading that and thinking, man, that's, she must have been a pretty rough lady to live with. I mean, if she was that demanding that she was able to manipulate him and coerce him uh, into to being willing to take a bribe from Russians to spy on the United States. But then, as, as I read on, I found out that it really wasn't her at all. As a matter of fact, she wasn't the kind of woman who would seek to manipulate her husband that way. And she wasn't that interested in material stuff. Robert Hansen initially uh, emphasized that it was because he did it for his wife. And she was the only one who brought life into life. That was why he did it. But again, she wasn't the one instigating this, so he had to say, well, it wasn't her fault, it was mine. And the truth was, when it all distilled down and boiled down to its purest elements, it was because he wanted a certain image. He wanted a certain image, and he assumed that his wife wanted that image as well. So he was finding value in that image, and that's actually what was spurring him, what was motivating him, to take these bribes from the Russians in order to spy on the United States. And much like that video you saw this morning, we will oftentimes let the world and outside influences prescribe value to us. And the result of that is oftentimes ill-formed motivations. Motivations come in different varieties for lots of different reasons. Maybe not because of a perceived need to make your wife think you're a somebody, but maybe because you need to keep up with the neighbors, you'll go out and go into more debt than you would have ordinarily. 
Or maybe there's a certain image you want to keep up that, that you can do anything. That you're superhuman almost. So you'll always say yes to everything that everybody asks you to do. Because honestly, deep down, you're afraid of disappointing somebody. I can relate. And that gives you a certain fear and an anxiety. You see, motivations matter. They matter a lot. As a matter of fact, they, if, if you get to 1 Corinthians 4 or 5 of the New Testament, it says that one day Jesus will examine and reveal our motives and our quality of service. So motives are worth thinking about. Why am I doing what I'm doing? This morning we're going to be in Ruth chapter 4. Ruth 4 verses 1 through 6. And we're going to talk about this subject of motives. What is motivating you? What is motivating me to do what we do? So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You can be seated. Thank you. Today we're actually going to be concluding the book of Ruth. We've been talking about this for a few weeks. And this morning we're going to focus on three things. Um, we're going to focus on a comparison of motives that comes up in the remainder of the narrative that we're going to be reading today. And then we're going to look at the result of right motives. You'll see it. It's going to pop right off the page towards the end of this chapter. Then finally, we're going to bring it closer to home. And we're going to talk about, well, how do we check our own motives? How can we check to see if we're doing things with right motives? So we enter into this final act. As I've been saying, the book of Ruth is laid out kind of like a play. You've got different acts with different scenes. And today will be in Act 4. Act 4 lies in two scenes. The others have had three. In Act 1, we saw tragedy and heartbreak. We saw a, a man who was living in the middle of a famine transport his family out of Bethlehem to a place called Moab. And there in Moab, more tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. His two sons die, leaving behind three widows. And in the midst of that, when they hear that famine has then broken in the land of Bethlehem, they move back. But it wasn't without its pain. At the end of that section, Naomi said that God had dealt with her bitterly, and not to call her Naomi, but to call her Mara, which means bitter. Then we go into Act 2, then we see hope kindled. We see Ruth taking this initiative, this loving initiative, 
uh, there at the beginning to say, I'm going to go out and find food for us, Naomi. Miraculously, she ends up in a field of a man named Boaz, who is going to be a potential redeemer for she and Naomi. And in that chapter, we see the love, the, the, the loving qualities of this man Boaz showing something that we've called chesed. We've been talking about that all throughout this book. It's this loyal love that underlies everything going on that we see in the book of Ruth. Showing initiative and undeserved concern for others. And then last week we saw a strategy devised and executed. We saw this wonderful act of integrity on the behalf of Naomi. And she didn't think about herself, but thought about her daughter-in-law Ruth. She desperately wanted to find her a husband. Even if it meant losing Ruth as a meal ticket, she was willing to do that. So they put together a plan, and we saw the plan executed, and it went very well. It went as they had hoped. We saw Boaz forego his own immediate desires in chapter 3 to marry Ruth because he knew the truth of the situation. He knew that there was a nearer kinsman. There was someone else that needed to be apprised of what was going on, a man that we're going to look at today. He needed to know the situation, and he needed to be given the opportunity to acquire the land in question and to marry Ruth. We'll see how that goes. That leads us into this fourth and final chapter. This is act four of a four-act play. Whereas the previous chapter has been laid out in three scenes, again, this was only in two. And we enter into this first scene taking place at the town gate uh, in verses one and two. Now, I don't know about how it is here, but growing up back in West Virginia, on any given Saturday morning, you could go into a McDonald's and you could see what they called the breakfast club, okay? I don't know if that happens here or not, but it's kind of a gathering of men who sit, they talk about the affairs of the day, they sort of chew the fat, so to speak, Quite literally, this is McDonald's we're talking about. <laughs> and they discussed things. And that was kind of like the town gate of the time of Ruth and Boaz. Men would gather there. They would talk about things. Boaz has gone there to clear up this legal matter introduced last week with another man, this closer relative to Naomi, who could serve as a redeemer if he so chose. Now, something needs to be explained about this guy's name, or lack thereof. You see, Bethlehem, relatively speaking, is a pretty small town. They tended to know each other. Not to mention, this guy was a family member of Boaz, so he certainly would have known his name. However, he doesn't refer to him by his name. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, in, in this version, he's called Friend. I've seen other versions that would just use the name John Doe. Literally, the name means Mr. So-and-so. And in Hebrew, it's pronounced the Poloni Almoni. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you giggling a little bit when you say that. That's a wordplay that comes into the Hebrew that doesn't really translate into English very well. But he's the Poloni Almoni, and it sounds kind of silly, and that's really intentional on behalf of the writer of Ruth. We're introduced to this guy as being kind of a nitwit, as we say it in English. 
So the writer of the book of Ruth has intentionally kept this guy anonymous because, frankly, he doesn't deserve our respect. And his name didn't even deserve to be written down for all eternity like the names of Ruth and Boaz. He's kind of like the villain of the movie. If this guy were in the movie, he'd be the one with the goatee, right? <laughs> Remember, they wanted to make Spock evil. They always put a goatee on him. Not too many Trekkies here, I don't think, but <laughs> in any case, uh, he was the, the evil figure, the villain, sort of the Darth Vader figure. And his name's intentionally not given to us. So Boaz has caught him, and he wants to speak to him then at the city gate. Um, and all the elders are there. These are the men, the men charged with running Bethlehem. Now that speaks to Boaz's place in this town, that all these men were, that run the city were willing to follow him here to the city gates and sit down like he's asked them to. Then we move on to the business of hand, uh, at hand, starting in verse 3. Uh, now this is like the proceeding of a court hearing that's going on. Um, Naomi is, is settling the land that belongs to Elimelech. Now, interestingly, Elimelech is a relative to both of these men, both to Boaz and the Poloni Almoni, Mr. So-and-so, the guy he's calling friend, this near kinsman. However, neither one of them are brothers to Elimelech. So they're not forced by law to enter into what they call a leverate marriage. A leverate is from the Latin word for brother-in-law, lever. And this would be a marriage that would, uh, would redeem the widow allow her name to, um, the, I'm sorry, allow the name of the man who deceased to continue on. The land would stay uh, in the family. But there was um, a pecking order to this if there were no brothers. So this other guy was a near kinsman. If he, you, you could think of it, this, this Maloney, this Poloni Almoni is like the first cousin, Boaz is like the second cousin. Now, the problem was Naomi didn't have the means to, to work her own land. Uh, she wouldn't have been allowed to do that. She probably didn't even fully own it at this point. So she couldn't have grown food there. So what Naomi is willing to give up is her right to the land. She could have bought it. However, she didn't have the means to do so. So she was giving someone else the means, the rights rather, to buy it. Evidently, Boaz knew that getting this land was part of the deal for getting Ruth. He was primarily interested in Ruth. We've got something of a romance budding here. But he knew the land was part of the deal. Now, the land was a gift from God. And Israelites saw it this way. They went through much uh, to conquer this land. And God gave it to them as a gift. And he portioned it out to them. So that's one of the reasons keeping this land in the family was such a big deal. This was God's gift to them, to their family. So you wanted to keep it within your family. Uh, and the only way to do that was to have a male heir for the land. And it kept your name going, and that was part of what kept the family alive. So there in verse 4, uh, Boaz has presented the option to this other man to purchase the land. And this guy, Mr. No Name, the Poloni Almoni, he says, I'll take it. He says, I'll redeem it. He says, I'll, I'll keep it in the family. Now, Ruth's heart would have broken to have heard that. This isn't the guy she's interested in. This isn't the one that she met there on the threshing floor. But Boaz has not yet mentioned her in the transaction. Then he continues in verse 5. Oh, by the way, 
if you get the land, you also get Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the outsider, Ruth the foreigner. And apparently at the death of Elimelech, the property had passed on to Malon. So Malon's widow, Ruth, was included in the redemption responsibility. A son to whom the property would belong should be raised up to perpetuate the family name. This was a game changer. Wait a second. There's somebody involved here? There's a woman I'd have to marry? Now, a few things to keep in view. This Almoni Poloni, this near kinsman, he would have been aware of Naomi's return. That wouldn't have escaped his notice. He would have known her plight, and up till now, he's done nothing to help. He's not lifted a finger. Unlike Boaz, as soon as he got back into town, he started helping Ruth and, and Naomi. But this guy's not operating like Boaz. As a matter of fact, this guy seems to have different motivations altogether. And you see him starting to come up. So if, if no one were to step up and marry Ruth, if nobody did that, he would just get the land. That would become part of his family because he's this nearer kinsman. So he may have been holding out. And if he had to pay for the land, uh, it would still probably produce enough crops to make up for its purchase, even to take, care of, to take care of Ruth and Naomi if he had to. So purchasing it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. So with all that in mind, he's seeing this as a good business decision. It's going to benefit him well. But then things changed. Now in front of all these witnesses, Boaz reveals to the man his own motives. He had no intentions of looking out for these women in need. Uh, he knew that if Ruth were to bear him a son, that that son would inherit not only the redeemed property, but probably a portion of what he already owned. So he saw this as, going to, as losing out. This was going to be a bad business deal for him. It could endanger his own estate. So we see his response then in verse 6. I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Cannot's an interesting choice of words. So then the motivation comes to the service of this no-name near kinsman. He's abiding by the letter of the law, not by the spirit of the law, because he's got no intentions of redeeming and helping these women. His main interest is only self-gain. Boaz, although, is motivated by something else. Remember, we're comparing some motivations here. Boaz is motivated by what we've been talking about all along, this, this hesed. Uh, and I want to revisit the definition of that word. It's a Hebrew word, Hebrew words whose meaning cannot be captured in one English word. This is a strong relational term that wraps itself in an entire cluster of concepts. All the positive attributes of God, love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness, in short, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. This is what is motivating Boaz throughout this entire story. 
And comparing the motivations of these two men, we see one motivated by a hesed, Boaz, and, and it's, it's happening with Naomi as well and Ruth as well. And I want to go back and visit that spy we talked about at the beginning. Why was it he committed treason? Financial pressure? Well, when you dig down, it comes, it comes down to more about image. It comes down to more about what he believed gave him value and worth. And that video you saw at the beginning illustrated this so, so well. What is it that gives people value and worth? For him, it was what his wife thought of him. That was a stronger motivation than the vows he had taken to protect and serve the country. Ultimately, for both the Almoni Poloni and this FBI agent, their identity was more about what the world told them they should value instead of what God told them they should value. The world's value meant more to them and motivated them more than what God said should be motivating them and what they should be valuing more. Yet the world's always going to try to sell you on something that's going to give you worth or value. It could be money, it could be power, it could be fame, possessions, looks. This is what the world's going to tell you that you should value. Therefore, the motivation to get those things should outweigh everything else. Not so with Christians, not so with the Word of God. That's why you see these differing motivations between these two men. So then, what are the results of the right motives of Boaz? That was the comparison. Uh, then what is the result of right motives? And we see some of them being immediate. Uh, in, the, in the end, summarizing verses 7 through 10, we have Boaz motivated by Hesed, acquiring the land that belonged to Elimelech, perpetuating the name of the dead, because he in fully intends to provide Ruth with a son, and he gets Ruth as a wife. And then we see further results. We see those immediate results of this redemption of this family. And then it goes on in verse 11. Which I don't have, but I'm going to read to you. <laughs> then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephathra and be, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, and who, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So we, we see this praise that erupts among these men sitting at this gate. And this is heavy stuff. Remember, Ruth is a Moabitess. And they're saying, we want you to be like these two women who, who birthed the nation of Israel. Rachel and Leah, they gave birth to the 12 tribes. We want your name to be renowned. The Fathra was another name for Bethlehem. Then may you, your house be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Tamar, like Ruth, was a non-Israelite who gave birth to someone who's also going to appear in the lineage of David. So you have all these wonderful blessings pronounced on Ruth. By the way, do you think Ruth still feels like an outsider? Do you think Ruth is still just wearing this label of Moabitess 
like the scarlet letter that probably she felt that she was wearing when she first got there. She has been fully accepted into this community. By the way, I hope that everybody here this morning feels fully accepted into this community and that we don't have anybody that feels like an outsider. And then we come to the climax of the book here in verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Naomi, who started out bitter, who was swimming her way out of tremendous grief and anguish, lost her husband, lost her two sons. Now she's been blessed with a child bouncing on her knee. So what do we make of all this? By the way, I want to make it clear, as someone who has gone through the pains of infertility, my wife and I struggled with that for some years, that there is no magical formula that you can do to just make that go away. Some women are going to struggle with this for a very long time. Um, the truth is neither Naomi or, or Ruth or Boaz had any idea of the results that would come about simply as they just acted with right motivations. They didn't know how this was going to end up. They had no promises of what was going to happen. They were stepping out in faith with right motivations all the way through this. And we see God acting all through this book, intervening in these people's lives. And I think you can summarize this up very well. I didn't come up with this, but I want to share it with you. That you can summarize the results like this. When common people act unselfishly toward each other in accordance with God's standards of hesed, they achieve uncommon results. And I hope you've seen that. God is going to use this union between Ruth and Boaz in the lineage of Christ himself. The Messiah will come through this union of Ruth and Boaz. Many generations yet to come, but will come nonetheless. The truth is, we have no idea how God might use the simplest of rightly motivated actions that you and I have. We don't know how God may, may work, but it sure does seem like He works. So then, I want to bring this close to home. And I want to ask a few questions. Actually, I want to share with you a few questions that perhaps you could ask yourself as you seek to have the right motives for things. And these are questions that I try to ask myself um, in regard to checking motives. Um, four questions. First of all, and whatever it is am I doing, am I just trying to remove discomfort? Now, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Especially early on in my marriage, uh, if my wife was having a bad day or something like that, it didn't make me feel very good. 
So I decided it was my job to convince her why she shouldn't be feeling that way. It never, ever worked. Not once. As a matter of fact, it typically made things a lot worse. But the question is, well, well, why was I doing that? Was I just trying to cheer her up? Sure, I was trying to cheer her up. But ultimately, it was about me. See, I didn't like her being sad. I didn't like her being upset. So it was my job to fix it and change it. But ultimately, it was about my own discomfort. So when you, when you strive to do something, even when you want to help someone, and maybe... Maybe you're being sincere, but ask yourself the question, is this more about me or the other person? Is this about me trying to make myself feel more comfortable? And think about the example of Jesus Christ for just one moment. You know, in the New Testament, uh, when, when Christ is, is approaching a scene where his friend Lazarus had just died, he steps into a lot of grieving people. He knows full good and well that he's going to resurrect this man. But notice, he never tells them once. Rather, when he gets there, he just cries along with them. He doesn't step in and say, would you guys just cheer up? Would you just, I'm going to fix this. No. He steps in and allows himself to experience the emotions that they're experiencing. That's what's really helpful for someone, to grieve with those who are grieving. Not just trying to remove your own discomfort. Can you let someone just feel their feelings? It's something to be mindful of. Then second, am I just doing this out of selfish gain? Now, I'll, I will tell you that from the penthouse to the poorhouse, everyone needs to receive loving acts of kindness. However, if there's something that you can benefit from, from this person, be very careful on why you're going to help them. If you're going to deliver a full spread meal to them because you're wanting to borrow something they have? Just think about that. Um, now, that doesn't mean you don't do it. Just be mindful of why am I doing this? Why, why am I doing this? Is there selfish gain involved? And then third, why are you going to say this? Why are you about to speak and say this? Or you could say, why am I going to put this on Facebook? Boy, I wish I had asked myself this question and thought about this before that dumb thing was ever invented. I've certainly put things on Facebook I wish I hadn't. And frankly, I have said things to people that haunt me to this day. Why am I going to say this? Is that of anger? Is it revenge? Or am I being subversive? Am I asking a question that kind of sounds like it's, like it's out of loving concern? But really, I'm just being nosy. Sometimes this even comes up in the way of a prayer request. How can I be praying for you in your marriage? How's it going? It's kind of... If it's sincere, great. But be careful. Why am I saying this? Why am I asking this? And then fourth, is fear motivating me? It could be fear of not fitting in. It could be fear of someone not liking me. Um, it could be fear of disappointing someone because you know they've let they, they have put expectations on you. And there's a wonderful quote that uh, this is from my, my seminary professor in, uh, at Dallas, John Hanna. He used to tell us that there is no greater tyranny than living under someone else's expectations. 
Is some, are you afraid to disappoint somebody? It's not that you go out seeking to disappoint someone. Or are you not doing something out of fear of failure? Think about this story again. Think about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. There was potential for failure in all of these situations. Naomi could have failed in finding a husband for Ruth. Ruth could have failed in finding food for Naomi. She didn't know where she was going to be able to glean. Boaz could have failed in trying to redeem Ruth and marry her. But it didn't stop him. Is fear of failure stopping you from doing something right now you know you should do? It's not a good enough reason. So, ultimately, we get to this question of motivation. Even when we see the sacrifice of Christ, the main motivation was love. We see in John 3, 16, it was for God, because God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for us. It, was, it wasn't because the world loved him. I don't know what God may or may not do through you or I as we seek to have right motives. I believe, though, that God does uncommon things through common people if they have this motivation of love. So I'd like to sum it all up uh, like this. Achieve extraordinary results by making extraordinary love your motivation. It begins by taking the step of believing and trusting in what Christ has done for you. It starts there. And then we can be rightly motivated in what we do. In 1904, uh, a man by the name of William Borden, you may recognize that name if you know what Borden Milk is. This was the heir to the Borden family fortune. Um, for his high school graduation, President's parents gave him a trip around the world. So here is this, this young man, 17, 18 years old. In the early 1900s, he's traveling around the world, goes to Asia, the Middle East. And while he was there, he felt a growing burden for the world's needs. And it was inescapable for him. So he wrote home to his family on this trip, and he said, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. And he held nothing back. He went on to college at Yale University. He became there a pillar of the Christian community at Yale. And there was one entry in his journal that defined the source of his spiritual strength. It just said, say no to self and say yes to Jesus every time. Then during his first semester at Yale, he started a prayer group that would transform campus life. Uh, this little group gave birth to a movement that spread across the campus. And by the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting for weekly Bible study and prayer. And by the time he was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. He strategized with fellow Christians to make sure every student on campus heard the gospel. And he was often seen ministering to the downtrodden in the streets of New Haven. But his real passion was missions. And then once he narrowed his missionary call to the people of China, he never wavered on it. And then upon graduation from Yale, he received all kinds of really good job offers, high-paying job offers, but instead he rolled into seminary. Then after graduating, he immediately went to Egypt to learn Arabic because he wanted to work with the Muslims in China. While he was in Egypt, 
he contracted spinal meningitis, and within one month, he had died. Prior to his death, he wrote two words in his Bible. No regrets. You see, when we're motivated rightly, when we are motivated by this hesed, this loyal love that we've been talking about, whatever happens, you will have no regrets. Please pray with me. Father, we love you as best we can. And Father, I pray that you would help us to evaluate our motives. Lord, we praise you that even though our motives aren't always what they should be, Lord, you still graciously work through us and love us and care for us. And I pray that we would do our part. God, that we would not act out of fear, that we would not um, act out of selfish gain, but out of this loyal love. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.